with a good answer to loneliness. We're never really left with a good answer for hope. Uh, we're never really left with a good answer for meaning, what the good life is like, what, what happens when we die. So if you have sent in questions about the Bible, thank you very much for that. And we're going to get to trying as many of those as we can. And we're going to try and answer that big question, can I trust the Bible? And I hope by the end of this, it'll be quite clear if you can or if you can't. And we'll also get to, why does that matter? Like, why is this even a question that we should even be thinking about? So as questions come up, um, go to that website, and uh, you don't have to put any, none of your personal information gets in there. It's all kind of anonymous. Um, also, I know I said it before, but on this topic and, and next week and basically like every single sermon that ever happens up here, more can always be said. And uh, there, there, and this isn't the end of the conversation, or this is not a conversation, it's a monologue, let's not fool anybody here. Uh, at the end of the monologue, uh, that's not the end of the conversation, it's really only the beginning. And I've had some really great chats with people already on stuff we talked about last week, and I'm looking forward to more, um, as hopefully this will just be kind of as we're growing and stumbling towards faith together. And that's also why we have these things called missional communities, where in smaller groups we get to wrestle through these things together in ways that we just can't on a Sunday. So here's some of the takeaways I hope we're going to come away with after today. Uh, The Bible is is the collection of God's words to us. It is trustworthy, and it is actually worth building your life around this thing. We have built our life around lots of things, but only the Bible gives us what we need because, and this is the reason why, because it's only through the Bible that we actually see Jesus. And we're going to talk about, is that true? Well, we'll talk about why we think that's true and also like why it actually matters. First, though, we're going to start with physical, historical evidence. Because uh, the thing I hear most often, and people probably don't have very many questions about this because it might be assumed, the thing I hear most often, especially with respect to the New Testament, is that uh, it has so many errors, it was written far too late for it to actually be real, and it was, or it was like Rome's version of trying to get power, or like a sect of religious thought in order to get power. We're going to deal with all these things. Uh, or maybe it's just like a, um, a way to continue a male-dominated way of living, like the patriarchal system, uh, a group with certain morals that wants to be preserved. So generally, what often we come away with, uh, what, because we'll be very nice about it, so it's like, oh, the Bible has good, some good stuff in it. It's not like evil. It's not completely horrible. But, you know, as one of my neighbors told me, uh, you can go a little bit too far with that stuff. You know, you can kind of believe it a little bit too much. So some bits are okay. Jesus was a good person, but he certainly was not the son of God. He probably never really claimed that. That was written much, much later. Uh, well, let's look at the facts. Let's look at these facts. And I'm just going to jump through a lot of these things, and we're going to move a little bit quickly so that we're not here for hours on end. Um, so uh, if uh, jot down questions you might have. I'm, I'm more than happy to chat more about these things. Because uh, there are claims that are rooted in facts, and then there are claims that are not. That's just kind of how life is. It's important to look at the facts. The first thing. New Testament documents were written early, and this is a really big deal. We'll talk about why. Um, but first, look at that Luke 1 through 1, 1 through 4 thing. If you have an app or your Bible, um, keep Luke 1 open for the moment. We're going to look at it a couple times. So here's that beginning of Luke. And uh, Luke is a doctor. He's writing one document called Luke Acts. So as if Acts is the beginning of the church. Luke is kind of a biography of Jesus called the Gospel of Jesus. So he's writing this one document, uh, and he says... Uh, it's based on uh, eyewitnesses, and in fact, he names places, he names people, so that the people who are reading this document can go to those places and talk to those people and see if this is actually true. There's eyewitness accounts. It's carefully investigated. It's not just kind of like, oh, this person said it was true, therefore, like, I'm just going to believe him because it fits my narrative. It's carefully investigated. Um, 
It's not something that comes through blind belief. And he's writing an orderly account, or at least this is his attempt to write an orderly account. This is like how we would have news reporting today. This is how Luke is seeing himself as a writer. He's not seeing himself as a, uh, writing a legend, a myth. Uh, he's not kind of trying to write some kind of um, allegory. Uh, it's very specific in the way that historical writing is done. And Paul, in the same way, who wrote a lot of the New Testament, Paul's writing 15, 20 years after Jesus. In 1 Corinthians 15, he writes about Jesus appearing to 500 people after his resurrection, um, of which the readers could go and actually investigate for themselves because those people are still alive. They're still around. Men talk to these people. So Christianity invites investigation. It doesn't ask for blind belief. Paul writes a letter to the church at Philippi, which is quite early on as well. And in that letter to this new church at a place called Philippi, he includes a quotation of a hymn uh, that was basically celebrating Jesus being God. Now, that hymn was already so established that Paul could include it in a letter to that church, and people would kind of assume it as common knowledge. So even early on, Christians are worshiping Jesus as God. It's not some kind of thing that was fabricated like hundreds of years after. Christians were worshiping Jesus as God from the very beginning. And that goes against this kind of false claim that I don't know if you've heard this before, versions of this, I hear it all the time. Of course, I would because I'm a nerd and I'm a pastor, I'm weird. So it's kind of stuff I talk about. Uh, There's a false claim out there that the Roman Emperor Constantine was the one who took all the Christian beliefs and uh, contorted it to make Jesus as God in order for him to get more power for himself. But Constantine was born in 306. All of these things were written like hundreds of years before Constantine. That would feel like uh, someone was like, uh, it's like the, from us in like the Victorian age now. That feels like a long span. That's the same kind of thing for Constantine and the writing of these New Testament documents. What actually really happened, uh, and if you talk to historians about this, this is what they'll tell you, Christianity was gaining so much traction in the Roman Empire that Constantine needed to back a winner. And so he had to make Christianity like legalize and be official state religion. Because we all know how political people love to use religion as their own weapon, right? That's kind of, that's a lot of our history. So it's written early, and that's a good thing because it's not like it's written hundreds of years after in this kind of like legendary status. Speaking of legendary status, have you ever read the Bible? It's not the stuff of legends. The people in the Bible look dumb, they look foolish, they look stupid, and those are the leaders. Like the Old Testament is full of womanizers, full of like people who uh, uh, treated... Had slaves. Also, it's it's hard. Like we're full of horrible people. If you want to write a legend about people who are trying to consolidate power for themselves, you would not include ninety nine percent of the stories in there. You would make us look a lot better. You would make God look a lot better if Jesus is claiming to be God, and you have to somehow make up a legend in order to present yourself as powerful. You would not include the Garden of Gethsemane, where Jesus is asking the Father to take that cup away from him so he doesn't have to go to the cross. If you're trying to write a, a legend of someone trying to gain power for himself, you wouldn't include Jesus' cry on the cross asking the Father, why is he forsaking him? You wouldn't include your God dying. That's a very shameful and, and kind of... Uh, the cross, maybe because we've had thousands of years of it being like sanitized, it's a very shameful, humiliating way to die. That's not how you would present a powerful God who's going to like, get power for yourself. And in this time also, the time of the New Testament, you wouldn't rely on a woman's testimony because in the Roman government, women's testimony was not admissible in court. And yet the people who are relied upon as eyewitnesses to the earliest accounts of Jesus' resurrection are women. Now, if you're trying to make up a document that's not true, 
you wouldn't include women as the primary eyewitnesses because people say, oh, of course, like, we can't believe women as people thought then because, I don't know, for some reason they can't tell the truth. I'm not sure what the reasons were. But it wasn't even admissible in court. And also, if that did happen, you'd try and cover all that up as well. But it's not. It's very plainly presented. And if you read the book of Acts, you'll find the apostles, those leaders of the church, they were not strong. They didn't really know what they were doing. Sometimes they did something and, or they got in fights with each other. Uh, people telling each, off, telling each other off through different letters. I mean, in Genesis, Abraham and Noah, they're horrible people. They really are bad human beings. They're connivers, womanizers. David, King David, who is like the best king Israel has ever had, uh, is a war criminal. You would cover that up if you're trying to make something up. Taking advantage of women and killing people in order to marry them. That's not how you create a legend to consolidate power for yourself. So it's not really the stuff of legends if you've actually read the Bible. Um, also, the genre is important. Legends and myths have a way of, of being written. If I was to say once upon a time, you know exactly what's coming. Oh, fairy tale's coming. You would not read a news report on coronavirus saying, once upon a time, you're like, what in the world's going on here? Like, this is not, this is not true. This is not factual. That's, uh, this is true of our time, of having, like, signalers of this is a certain way of, of writing this kind of genre is another way of writing. Uh, the same thing happens in every culture. They all have, like, signalers of what kind of thing that they're writing, signaling the genre. And the time of the Bible, whether it's the New Testament or the Old Testament, the way the Bible is writing is written, is not just, is just not how myths are written. Well, let's use um, that Luke 1 example, by the way, if you still have it. Uh, Luke 1 section as an example. That is not how you start a myth. It's far too detailed. He's saying, I'm writing to you these factual accounts as orderly things so that you can know for sure, like, so you can have certainty of what's, what's actually went on. That's not how you write a myth then. That's not how you write a myth now. And you wouldn't include these very specific details of people and places and things like that. That's just not how myths are done. It's not a novel. This is a myth. And the novel, by the way, was something that was written like, in, our, in modern time. So either, as one um, scholar put it, either this is Luke reporting history, at least uh, maybe at the very least believing he's reporting history, or else some unknown writer without someone before him or after him to emulate him has anticipated the whole technique of the modern novel and historical narrative, or it's actually reporting. So one takes more faith to believe than the other. Okay, another word, we're going to learn a couple um, weird and fun words here. You can impress your friends at our next dinner table. Let's talk about the historicity of. Uh, so his, historicity, that just is like putting two words, smashing two words together. Historical authenticity. Historical authenticity. So the historicity of something is, is this thing historically authentic is the question that might be, bringing, might, might be brought up. Uh, here's a table here that might be kind of crazy, but I'll tell you why it actually matters a lot. There's a lot of information here. You don't need to know all the information. Um, it's got nice big circles, and that makes it easier to understand. Uh, this is telling us two things. The time, the gap between the oldest copy we have, or writing, and the event itself, and the total amount of copies that we have. And if you have a lot of copies, a lot of authentic copies, that shows the reliability of something. And if you have something that's written as closer to an event than farther away, that tells you the uh, historical accuracy of something. So you have something like New Testament Greek, the time gap between uh, New Testament documents and the events that, we have, that, uh, that they're writing about is 40 years. You might say 40 years, that's a real long time. Um, 40 years is, I mean, you can write a memoir in 
lots of people have, especially during lockdown. What are comedians going to do? I guess they got to write books um, about stuff that happened 40 years ago. Um, but yeah, maybe that's a long time unless you compare that with what is that, how does that make sense for an ancient historical document? Because what feels long to us may not be long in those kind of terms. Well, if you look at something, uh, the next thing that's, uh, that's closest to it, uh, as far as the time gap is concerned, is the, uh, is, uh, uh, well, let's take Homer's Iliad, for example, which everyone would say, oh, the Iliad, yeah, well, that's, Homer wrote it, or at least if he didn't, we know this is generally what he said. Um, it's not the question of historical accuracy in the document itself. It's not really too much of a question as far as I know. could be wrong on that. Um, but the time gap between Homer and uh, when the actual original time of when he wrote it was about 400 years. That's 10 times the amount. Then you have something like Caesar's Gaelic Wars. That's 950 years. You have Pliny's Natural History. That's 400 years. So as far as the time gap is, is concerned, there is no other ancient historical document that has a time gap as short as the Bible is. It, it's the shortest one that we have. There's nothing else out there. The time gap is, the, is close. And then also, when you look at the total amount of copies, of authentic copies, uh, New Testament Greek documents is around 5,800, 5,500, depending on the amount of... Actually, the oldest copy of the New Testament we have is in the Rylands Library here in Manchester, which is kind of cool, although I don't think it's on display now. Yeah, yeah, well, uh, yeah, it's like, uh, like three... Not, yeah, it's like a little, like, someone cut it out and put their shopping on one side or something. Um, yeah, so it's very small. That's a very small thing. And, but some of them are very small. Some of them are large. Some of them have multiple kind of things. Um, but as far as total amount of copies that we're talking about, New Testament, the New Testament documents are, like, as you can see, the size of that red circle is massive. The next thing that's close is, is Homer, and it's like three times more. That's huge. So if you're, ta- if you're worried about the historical accuracy of the New Testament documents themselves, there is no other ancient document that's better attested to than the Bible itself. And the more that we uncover, the more that we find how, how actually it fits in with each other and how accurate it is. The more, um, it's not, you would expect, if the Bible is not accurate, we'll just give it enough time and we'll find all the variations and we'll show its, an, in, an, its inaccuracies. But actually the opposite has been true. The longer time has gone on, the more we find actually how accurate we have in those documents and how good those copies are. Now there are mistakes here and there. We can talk about that in a bit. I'm not going to talk about that now. Um, but this is just kind of like a flyover view of uh, how historically accurate the Bible is. Um, lastly, and this is a really fun, nerdy word that probably only happens in um, English worlds, possibly, and that's intertextuality. Um, and I'll leave this as the last point here. Intertextuality is how a document references itself. It's like if you've ever watched like a long-running uh, TV series, and the character's like, like 10 years in or something, if they're still around, um, are acting completely different as they would have when they started, that's like very poor intertextuality because the beginning doesn't really connect with the middle or the end, or vice versa. The ending doesn't really connect with the beginning. It's how a document references itself. Um, how connected is a document within itself? Now, if that's like a little abstract and weird, hopefully if I talk about it a little bit, it might make more sense. It's basically asking, is it a coherent whole or is it disconnected? You would expect that with over 60 authors, over a span of 14 or 15 centuries, different cultural beliefs, different languages, different places, different backgrounds, you would expect very low intertextuality with the Bible. How can a book like that be coherent? That doesn't make any sense. But that's not what we get, because the Bible is a stunning example of high intertextuality. Now this is every book of the Bible, 
and every internal reference in itself. So here's the uh, difference between the Old Testament and the New Testament. Each one of these lines is uh, different verses in, the, uh, in, in either testaments, and each one of those, uh, these little kind of gray areas are different books. The colors represent like the length of connection. So if you have something maybe like from Genesis to Revelation, that's gonna be like that greener color, that yellow color. Um, the closer ones are like bluer or purple. But this is how these verses reference each other throughout the entire Bible. 14, 15 centuries, 60 authors, however many authors there are, like different languages, cultures, all sorts of things. It's, com it's incredibly coherent. You would expect the opposite to be true if the Bible is just something that's kind of made up or pieced together. And all of this is actually said under the scrutiny that the Bible has had academically for a very, very long time. No other histor religious historical book would have that same kind of scrutiny as the Old and New Testaments together. So it, one other thing I like about this is, um, and we'll talk about this later on, is it's not just like interesting data, it's beautiful. Something that's held up in such a way is beautiful. Even that graph is very beautiful. I know Mike is gonna have this, Mike and Liz will have this hanging in their house <laughs> behind. Maybe you think I'm joking, no. It's where nerdery meets art, I guess. Um, Overall, the actual physical historical evidence for the authenticity of the Bible is quite overwhelming. And this is after scholars from all kinds of backgrounds, religious kind of backgrounds, have uh, kind of put the Bible under its microscope. So the question of can I trust that the Bible is, is historically accurate if we want to base our lives off of this, um, the reality is, the data is, that yes, it is historically accurate. And the biggest theme that the Bible has is that Jesus is God. And we'll get to that later on. But you might very well say, okay, well, maybe the Bible is like accurate in itself insofar as the people who were writing believed what they wrote. And the people who followed them probably believe what they wrote too. Uh, they passionately believe these in very inconvenient kind of truths to the death in some cases. But isn't the Bible now, isn't it a bit too oppressive? Isn't it written for another time? I mean, Me Too, Black Lives Matter, all these kinds of things that we've kind of grown, concerns over environmentalism. Here's one question that I got that encapsulated a lot of other questions. This is a great question. The church seems to use passages from a different time to back up antiquated beliefs. What a great, that's a great question, and that's what we're going to look at. Let's look at this. Some reasons that we don't trust the Bible, because I think regardless of physical evidence, the thing that's more difficult for us is the cultural and personal boundaries that the Bible kind of puts forth. Uh, that's generally what is more troubling, because that actually might matter a lot more in our lives. If we, and if we were to make a list of everything in the Bible that offended your typical Mancunian, I mean, we'd be here all day. We wouldn't have enough time. Like, we have to throw some, you know, food to the kids' people so they could, you know, survive the hours of list-making we'd have to do. But that list would be different than 10 years ago, and that list would be different 10 years from now. And so whether it offends us or not um, doesn't really relate to how truthful it is. Of course, it's going to offend us. That's okay. I think what's what the more difficult thing is how do I deal with something that offends me and We'll talk a little bit about that now. So this really isn't so much about trusting the Bible as it is about dealing with what offends us in the Bible. Um, well, here's um, three ideas that I've mostly stolen from other people who are more intelligent than me. Uh, and I think they were helpful for me. I think they might be helpful for you as well. Um, and if we're led by what offends us, here's the thing, the main takeaway. If we're led by what offends us, we will miss Jesus. We're going to miss him completely. And this is exactly what's going on in Luke 24. So if you, if you want to swipe there or turn there, we'll talk about a few things in, um, in Luke 24. 
the first thing that happens, uh, the first thing for us to think of when we come across something that offends us, the first thing to think about is the possibility that maybe, just maybe, we don't get everything right at the start. Like maybe we don't have it right to begin with. See, the disciples miss Jesus. Uh, this is the resurrected Jesus talking to the disciples uh, on the road to Emmaus, and they're saying, oh, it's so sad, or, or the Savior, the Jesus, he died, but Jesus is literally right, right there, and, and they've missed him. Uh, they missed Jesus because they thought the Bible taught something that it didn't. They said, oh, this Jesus was going to redeem Israel, but now he can't because he's dead. And when you come into contact with something that might offend us, the first stop is consider it that it may not teach what you think it teaches. It may not be true. Like the disciples here, Jesus helps us. Here's um, verses 20 and 21 on Luke 24. So the chief priests, this is why they were downcast, like they were depressed. Uh, they're telling Jesus, the chief priests and our rulers handed him over to be sentenced to death, and they crucified him. But we had hoped that he uh, was the one who was going to redeem Israel. The disciples didn't think Jesus was going to die in the way that he was going to, even though he told them many, many times he was going to die that way. They thought he was going to redeem Israel. And of course, he was going to redeem his people. Like, that's what he was there to do. But not in the way that they thought redeem Israel meant. They thought redeem Israel was this political kind of overtake and kick the Romans out of our city and let's take this, this Jerusalem back for ourselves. They wanted an immediate solution, and they were impatient. They thought the Bible taught something that it didn't. And because of that, they missed Jesus completely. Instead of being hopeful, they're downcast. They should be throwing a party. The resurrected Jesus is there walking with them, um, as should we when we understand the amazing stuff that's in the Bible. Uh, here are some examples of um, things that we might think the Bible teaches, but it doesn't. Uh, the church, as this question, the church seems to use passages from a different time to back up antiquated beliefs. Yes, I completely agree. The church does all the time. The church contorts the Bible to kind of use beliefs for our own. Um, that doesn't mean there's a problem with the Bible as much as a problem with how we come to the Bible and how we study it, how we interpret it, how we use it. For example, women in the Old Testament are treated poorly. Polygamy helps keep a man in power. Women were objects. You had to pay a dowry, all that kind of stuff. But when you actually read those Old Testament texts, you find polygamy is horribly destructive, and what God is doing is not supporting those kind of polygamous, kind of male-centered structures as much as he's subverting those structures. The way that God works, what he calls his people to do is to subvert those ancient patriarchal systems and institutions. It's only in our ignorance that we believe that the Bible hasn't been radical to every culture that it's been in, regardless of time, regardless of place. Now, the only way to deal with that initial feeling of offense, if you have that, the only way to kind of deal with that is to keep with it, to stick with it, and keep, keep reading. You might be offended, possibly, by something that God actually never said or never actually intended, and yet you're interpreting it in a wrong way. And you won't, if, if that first offense, you run the other way, you won't get to really understand what God actually said to begin with, and you're going to miss Jesus. Because what if... What seems like supporting an ancient patriarchal system, uh, you canceled the Bible and you canceled Jesus. What if that's, okay, I can't believe the Bible and I can't believe Christianity because of that, and then you stopped. You would miss out on a real relationship with Jesus, all because of something that God actually never even taught to begin with. That's a tragedy. So if we're offended, the first stop might be, maybe I don't really get everything right to begin with. Secondly, uh, we all have cultural blinders. The disciples in Luke 24 
they had far too small of a view of God's plan. They thought, I mean, maybe they thought like Jesus taking over Jerusalem and that was like a, a huge, massive plan. But it's really like God has much bigger plans than Jerusalem, much bigger plans than just people who were ethnic Jews. The disciples in Luke 24 had far too small of a God's plan. And because of that, they missed the bigger point. They were more concerned about political power. And that might seem like a big thing, as it does to us. But God wanted to do something more. Their culturally conditioned hopes were set far too small. They were more concerned about what was right in front of their face. They had such a small view of God that they missed him. So, for example, if our culture says freedom is the best possible end and, uh, and that's something that we believe without testing it because we're all culturally conditioned, we'll find limits to our freedom, especially our sexual freedom, we'll find that as offensive to begin with. And if we stop there, we're going to miss out on what God might have to say to us. So we all have cultural blinders. That's okay. Just let's keep going with it. Keep walking and keep reading. The third, as, um, just as true in our time as it has been every single time, we all think we finally have it right. All this time, like we are the pinnacle of the historical, of the, the movement of history. You know, we are the fulcrum, and from here on in, like we know what we have to do. We've arrived, right? We know what we need to do. We're very, you know, secular liberal types, and, uh, you know, we know what we're doing. We have a ways to go, maybe. Maybe things aren't perfect, but at least we know what we need to do next, right? And the Bible, well, that was just a product of its time. Because Jesus, he's not radical enough. We need something a bit more, a bit more radical than Jesus. As Tim Keller puts it, you may be offended because of, and this is the thing for all of us, an unexamined superiority of your own cultural moment. You may think, right now we've got it. Those other people, they don't. But right now we got it. For example, last week we talked about sex. And part of that talk was about the limits of our sexual freedom. Uh, culturally, that is a huge problem for us. I do not want to talk about any of those things. <laughs> Can I avoid that, please? Uh, in other cultures, though, say in Iran, for example, that's not a problem. People would probably say the Bible's far too soft, right? Now, we think we're right, but why is that? Because we live here? Oh, of course, like you think you're right because you live here. Or because we have it right? Who's to say? Are we going to be cultural imperialists and say, because we live here, we have it all right, everyone else has to get in line? That doesn't sound very kind of secular and liberal. We should at least question our cultural imperialism from where we come from. Now, if the Bible is really the revelation of God's word, if, that, if that's what it claims to be, if it really is that, then surely every culture will find offense to it. So in fact, where we say, oh, I can't believe the Bible because it might offend us, and therefore God isn't true, whatever, in fact, it actually becomes an argument for God existing. Because if it didn't offend you at all, that's not really a God worth existing. It's just our uh, images of us plastered high. But if God offends us, that's, mo that's possibly... A, a reason for God existing. Because surely if God exists and we don't have everything right, like there's going to be some offense there. And 50 years from now, your great-grandchildren are going to be embarrassed by some of your views. They're going to be embarrassed by some of the ways that you talk. Like, oh, I can't believe my great-grandfather used to say this horrible thing. Whatever it might be. Just as you might be embarrassed by your great-grandparents. Oh, uh, yeah, she talks that way, but you know, it's a product of her time or whatever. The problem is, we don't know what those beliefs are going to be 50 years from now. What, what's, what's going to be embarrassing 50 years from now? What's going to be culturally in vogue 50 years from now? I don't know. Like, I have no idea what it might be. I have ideas. And if being offended by the Bible offends your sensibilities of having it right, 
Some of which, for all we know, might be seen as completely ridiculous and embarrassing in just merely 50 years. Surely that's not a reason to miss what Jesus has to say to us. So when we get offended, just try and keep going and keep going through it. Now, um, I want to stop for a second because if this is the only route we take, here are some kind of like, you know, philosophical arguments or like historical arguments, things like that. If that's the only route we take, we will go down the wrong path because this is not something to be seen in like a cold clinical environment to be taken like with a microscope under the right kind of conditions. Don't get too close. Okay, we'll take this apart, pick this apart, and deal with it here and then come back to it. The posture that we bring to the Bible, the posture that Jesus brings to the Bible, is, affects how we view it. Once we put ourselves in as judges, we become like Britain's got talent, and you, know, you view the talent differently when you're in that judge seat, right? It, it's a completely different thing. The whole goal of the Bible is to form us, not the other way around. The Bible is supposed to form us, not for us to form it. And the only way to understand the Bible actually is to give yourself to it. You can view it from, from afar and get some, you know, understand a little bit, but you cannot actually get it unless you give yourself to it. Now, if we uh, spent some time in the more scientific and philosophical realm because faith is not devoid of investigation, but it's all in how we investigate that matters. And so we're going to look briefly about how Jesus viewed the Bible. And Jesus was a rabbi. You know what that meant? What does rabbi mean? Teacher. What did he teach? The scriptures. Yeah, the Old Testament. Like, he, 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 he thought pretty highly about scripture. Like, he was a, a master of the Old Testament. He taught it. So what was Jesus' view of the scriptures? It's actually quite high, you'd have to say. Now, notice um, when people got it wrong in Luke 24, you know, when, they, when the disciples got it wrong there, Jesus came and he didn't, like, I mean, he kind of chided them a bit, like, oh, you guys are foolish. But what he also did is he helped them understand. And that's what Jesus does for us still. So it's not only about our reason, it's about surrendering to Jesus because we need his help. And we can't do this on our own. We can't do it by mere, uh, mere pure reason. And there's a section from the Sermon on the Mount. We looked briefly at the Sermon on the Mount last week. The section here at the Sermon on the Mount where Jesus um, talks about, do I have it on the screen? Oh, yeah, I do. Um, Jesus uh, talks about the scriptures. This is Matthew 5, 17 through 19. Matthew says, Do not think I've come to abolish the law of the prophets. I've not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I tell you, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter, not the least stroke of a pen, will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. Therefore, anyone who sets aside one of the least of these commands and teaches others accordingly will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever practices and teaches these commands will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you that unless the righteousness, your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and of the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. Now, in that first section, in verse 17, the very first section, do not think I'm come to abolish the law. People were thinking, Jesus is teaching these really radical things. He's come to kind of like deconstruct the Bible. He's here to like destroy it, deconstruct it, take it apart. So he said, don't think I've come to abolish this. And all the religious conservatives breathe a sigh of relief. Oh, thank God. And they think, oh, but I've come to, and they're thinking, obey. He doesn't say obey. He says fulfill. Everyone else, all the religious conservatives are, oh, he's okay, he's not going to destroy it, he's going to obey it. He's going to fulfill it. That's something different than obeying. What Jesus says is this, Jesus is the end goal, the fulfillment of scripture. The entire story of the Bible is all about him. Jesus does more than uphold the scriptures. He fulfills them. He makes them alive. 
He makes them true. See, scripture has a personal element to it that if we don't read it in that way, we will miss and we won't get. Then um, look at verse 19, which starts, um, anyone, therefore anyone who, who sets aside one of the least of these commands and teaches others accordingly will be the least. Whoever practices and teaches these commands will be called great. Anyone who sets aside the least will be least. Practicing and, and, and understanding and kind of like meditating and having the, having the Bible become part of your life makes someone great. This is the path to the good life. Jesus didn't say this to the crowds and then be like, but you know, in 2,000 years, some of this stuff's gonna be outdated, guys, so don't worry about it. Like, and this, I'm saying this for, for you, Luke, or for you, Matthew, so you're gonna write this 2,000 years from now um, because you know, we're gonna grow as a people and you know, morality will change and the ideas will change. He's not saying any of that. He said, this is, it, it, it's, it's bedrock. And there is a fallacy that has been around as long as the Bible has. Basically, I'll be a Christian, but not really be about all the Bible. I'll just be about, you know, it's that 1% of the Bible I just cannot deal with. And so I'm, not, I'm just going to try and pretend like that part's not in my Bible, Bible or cut it out. I get to pick and choose. The problem with that is you're not being formed by the Bible. You're trying to form the Bible into yourself. And if we're going to be, as we have on that sign back there, a gospel-formed family, that means the gospel is from the beginning of the story to the end of the story, from Genesis to Revelation, is the story of God. We have to be formed by this before anything because we don't want to be the least in the kingdom. We want to be great, not to be great in ourselves, but we want to live that good life. And the only way to know about it is to know about all of this. And if scripture isn't forming you, something else will, something else is. We are all formed by something. The way to come to Jesus is through the Bible. And for Jesus, there is a relationship between how we come to Scripture and our life in his kingdom. So kind of a one-to-one relationship. If we surrender to Scripture, we get the benefits. If we resist, we get the consequences. And to surrender doesn't mean merely to understand. He says to practice these things. So it doesn't mean to merely have a thought. It doesn't mean to merely have a belief, to like um, kind of sign up to a certain amount of philosophical beliefs. To surrender means to practice and to teach other people. Uh, practice requires our hearts, requires a doing, requires being involved in it. It's not a performance, the Christian life. It's called practice. Actually, I was thinking this today. Christianity is a horrible thing, an impossible thing to be good at. It's a great thing to be really bad at. Like, Christianity is perfect. If you want to be bad at something, man, have I got a thing for you. Like, Christianity is great. The only one who was good at being at Christianity was Christ, the, the one. And to surrender uh, is something more than just understanding. Christianity is a team sport, and the way we understand is through uh, community, is through other people. But that's a whole other thing. Okay, we're not going to get on that. Okay, let's land this somewhere. That we talked about some evidence. We talked about how Jesus viewed the Bible. We're going to bring this a bit more personal, how we can view the Bible, how we can come with a posture of surrendering to something that can and will offend us. That's the most difficult part, I think. First is to realize that this is a personal connection because Jesus explaining the scriptures to the disciples in, in Luke 24, they said this, were not our hearts burning within us when Jesus was teaching us the scriptures? There was something in them, some kind of passion in them was, was coming alive. Some, they were coming alive when Jesus was, described, was explaining the scriptures to them. And what was Jesus saying to them? He, beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them what was said in the scriptures concerning himself. Jesus' high view of scripture, he saw himself as a fulfillment. He didn't say, here's 
a way to live, follow these rules. He said, here's the way to live, come and follow me. That's different than any other religious leader. Luke 24, 27. If you want to understand how to interpret the Bible, the only, and if you only had one verse, if you knew Luke 24, 27 and understood how that applies to Genesis and Exodus, Ecclesiastes, all the other kind of things, you would be able to understand the entire Bible. It's all about how, uh, it's all about showing us who Jesus is. Without that, this ends up being a list of rules, a list of semi-interesting stories, uh, instead of it actually being something that gives us life. So you can read the Bible and make it all about you. Uh, you do that, and there's no need for a Messiah. You just get a list of rules to live by, and we'll all do it poorly, by the way. Um, but you'll pretend that you do it well, and so you'll make yourself look better, and you'll kind of maybe force that upon other people as well. Or you can read it in the way that it was meant to, in the way that Jesus taught, that it was all about Jesus. And this changes how we interpret all of Scripture. I'm going to take one quick example. David and Goliath, for example. The story of David killing this big, massive giant Goliath. Uh, and we read that story, uh, and we might think it's all about us. You know, if only, it's all about you. And you may have even heard sermons like this. You can have the courage to slay your giants, or you can have the courage to slay your fear, whatever it is. Um, we can't help but put ourselves in the spot of the hero. But if Luke 24, 27 is true, as Jesus taught it, then actually that story isn't first about us. It's first about him. And when you read it through that lens, you realize, actually, <laughs> I'm not David. And I rarely live like that, if ever. What I really am are the scared Israelite army that's just begging for someone to come and deliver us. It's, not, it's, uh, it's a story about our need for a savior to rescue us, one that nobody saw coming. That sounds a little bit familiar. One that will finally put to death all that overwhelms us. Then we didn't do anything, but yet we also get all the benefits. It's not a story of our courage as much as it's a story about his rescue. That's just one small example of how Luke 24, 27 interprets the Bible for us. And when we come to sections that are difficult, please don't let your difficulties mislead you and let you miss Jesus altogether. When God makes you angry, offends you, or whatever else, have it out with God. And just the other day, Christina, or it was last night, Christina was reading uh, one of the Bible stories to Colin talking about Jacob being named Israel and Israel being basically meaning wrestling with God. I think, that's what we're called to do. I'm just, we're called to wrestle with him, like shout at him. Have any, if you've read the Psalms at all, like the Psalms, like the authors of the Psalms are pretty like angry with God when they need to be. And look, Jesus' relationship with God was completely perfect. And yet Jesus wrestled with him as well. What was he led by though? All the time he was led by scripture, especially in times of difficulty, in the desert, wandering, tempted by the devil himself, which is not something maybe any of us have ever experienced he speaks scripture on the cross, his last dying words. He speaks scripture. For Jesus, knowing God is knowing his words. And that's what Jesus does for us as he helps us in that. And each one of us is on a road similar to those disciples on their way to Emmaus in Luke 24. Each one of us have our own idea of what the good life is about, of, of the route to get to that good life. And by ourselves, we all get it wrong, just like those disciples. What it takes is for Jesus to show us through his word, how everything is about him. We're going to be offended. We'll find it difficult. We'll find it like barely able to understand at parts. Uh, but true greatness comes in practicing and teaching all of scripture, something that we can't do on our own. And that's one reason that Jesus died. After his death and his resurrection, he ascended into heaven. And what he did next was he spent, sent his spirit into his people, 
So the Holy Spirit in us is Jesus on the road to Emmaus, showing us how the Bible is all about him, using his word to kind of illuminate the reality of Jesus being with us. Otherwise, we'll miss him, even if he's there literally walking with us. And so Jesus now, through the Holy Spirit, is not bound by one physical body, but now he's multiplied to, through to a people he's renewing and recreating, teaching us how it's all about him. Let me pray, and then I'll get to some more questions. Uh, Jesus, we thank you that you have given us your word. Uh, we thank you that you continue to teach us. I pray that you would uh, form our hearts in such a way that we would surrender. And when we come to those places of difficulty, when we come to the uh, places that offend us, that just don't seem to align at all with uh, what we want or what our culture wants or all the other things, uh, Lord, we pray that uh, you would keep us there and allow us to not miss you, not let our offense mislead us and be able to continue to grow despite the offense that you inevitably bring in our lives. So we pray all this in your name, Lord. Amen. Now, there's probably loads of questions. I haven't even um, checked my, uh, my phone for the questions you sent in, but we do have some to begin with. I'm going to ask Rachel to ask some questions uh, ahead of time. Um, and I did prepare a little bit ahead of time for this, but uh, not, not terribly so. I think that the improv nature of this is uh, where we get into trouble, but also I think where it's kind of interesting. So anyway, um, some questions that came through. Sure. So you talked a bit, you mentioned about um, how maybe in Iran people would interpret things, uh, their rules and things differently. And so I guess that leads us on to, you know, other religions in the world. And uh, so Islam is a you know, big one, but how is it possible that we, there is only one religion, there is only one truth, and what, what do you say perhaps to the other, speak to the other religions in the world? Yeah, great. Um, great question, Rachel. I'm glad you asked. Um, no, these are all, come, they've all come from the explore questions. Uh, so Jesus didn't teach that he was a way. He taught that he was the way. Jesus didn't teach that there are rules or like a certain way of life. He taught himself. He was the center of his religion that we follow. Uh, which is different than something like Buddhism, which is different than something like Islam, uh, or you know whatever else it might be in there. Um, thanks, Paul. I'm about to get my scarf myself. I'm like uh, the um, so Jesus is quite exclusive with that. So we take him at his words. He is exclusive, uh, but wonderfully inclusive, in that anyone can come to him. The other, I guess, um, the kind of general thing that culture might say is like, well, all paths kind of lead to God which I think is like either, uh, it must be, I think it must be just complete ignorance of what all other religions teach because they're incredibly incoherent with each other, inconsistent with each other. So if God wanted to confuse us, he would give us loads of kinds of different kinds of religions, none of which actually connected with each other or even really like make sense with each other in order to never find him. Now, if God wanted to be found, surely he would make a way to be found. Maybe he would work through a person and then a family and then a nation and then he would come himself and then make it very easy for us to like actually literally read words that he wanted us to read, like with our eyeballs. You can read the words that he wants us to know. Um, so in some sense, we're like, oh, that sounds like terribly easy. Like, yeah, actually, and I think that kind of makes sense for it to be easy uh, because God has made it easy for us. Now, there's loads more to say about that, but that's, a, yeah, anyway. So another question we had was, um, so we read in the Bible all sorts of different miracles, and um, I guess people might say they're a little bit, it feels like magic. Um, so are we supposed to really believe that God, that Jesus fed, you know, thousands and thousands of people with two fish and two loaves or whatever? How does that? 
how to speak to that. Yes, that, um, it does seem impossible. And I, I was thinking about this one, I think a great question, because what's the difference between miracle and magic? There's not very much except for uh, the main thing um, is miracles in the, in the Gospels. Uh, they're often, are signs, in fact, they're often called signs. So people weren't supposed to be amazed at um, whatever the miracle thing might be, although they were amazing in themselves. I mean, it's just like if you have a sign for like, I know in South Carolina, North Carolina, there are, are signs for like scenic overlook, and they'll let you know, oh, here's a place you can park and you take a photo. No one stops and parks and takes a photo of the sign that says scenic overlook. Like, that would be weird. Um, as beautiful as that sign might be, it's like there's a great vista to behold in front of you. And that's, that was the point of the miracles in the Gospels, was to be a sign that Jesus is the Messiah, that he is who he says he was. Um, and so that would be different than just kind of raw magic, doing like magic tricks or, you know, being a little bit of a sideshow or just being something, isn't this interesting? I can do this. Isn't that cool? Um, the signs were there for like a... a, a redemptive historical reason for Jesus showing himself as the Messiah. And the other thing is, if God is who he says he was, wouldn't we expect him to do things that would kind of be beyond our comprehension um, or kind of beyond our, basically beyond the limits of physics or whatever the thing might be? So are we expected to believe those things? Yes. Is that easy? No. So yeah. <laughs> Excellent. Thank you. Right. Uh, so another question was, um, I have trouble when people call the Bible the word of God as it was actually written by men yes. rather than by God. Yes. Yeah. Um, so we touched that on a little bit and get to that patriarchal kind of assumption that, um, you know, uh, that the Bible is uh, merely like a male-dominated thing. Um, so the, uh, the problem I have with that question is uh, how I would frame it differently is I would say the Bible is written through men, not by men. Something that's written by someone is something that's written through someone. If you are relaying information, that's different than if you're making the information up. And what this is the, the more crazier thing than that is the fact that God actually lets us in on his, the writing of his word. He could just have, like, have it like fall from heaven if he wanted to. He could have the kingdom of God advance in the way that he wanted to, but yet he calls the church to be a part of it. He calls people to write and to be a part of this. So it was written through people, yes, through men, yes. And uh, that's how God loves to work. It's like a bring your kid to work day. And when you bring your kid to work, if you've ever done that, um, and they get something done, it's not because they were really good workers. It's because you kind of did the things for them. Uh, and that's what God loves to do because he's, he's a personal kind of God in that way. So it was written through men, yes, but not by men. And we talked a little bit about the um, patriarchal nature. That I don't, what, If you have more questions about that, please send it in, but we won't do any more on that now. Question about the patriarchy, which <laughs> let's bring it down. Yeah. Uh, so, what role do women play in the church? They can lead. Uh, <laughs> they can sing. Um, yes, uh, as big of a role as men would in any kind of possible way. Um, this morning, your coffee is here because two women made it. Uh, that's a that's a way of leading. Um, and I will enjoy the leading right now. Um, most of the people, most of the women who lead our gatherings are women. Um, we have one person right now leading music as a woman. Hopefully I'm not like, leaving other women out. Um, which would be a very man thing to do, wouldn't it? Uh, <laughs> well, we, we believe, so the image of God is reflected in men and women together. Uh, it's not one 
or the other. Uh, it's both that are together. And that gets worked out in other kind of specific ways we, and that I can more than happily talk about. Um, but generally, if you're a woman and, you, and you're part of Redeemer, uh, you can lead in probably any possible way you want to. Um, so if you wrote that and you're like, because I want to lead, yeah, let's have a chat. Okay, thank you. So, uh, I think my final question for now for the Q&A is, um, why do you think everybody needs to be a Christian? There are lots of amazing people who do amazing things who aren't Christians, so why would they need God? Yes. Being a Christian will not make you amazing. Um, maybe that's how it's sold sometimes. Wouldn't it be amazing if you were a Christian? Now, there are amazing aspects of Christianity. It will not make you an amazing person in the way that I think that question probably implied. Also, anyone who's amazing, think of the most amazing person, maybe that's yourself, uh, you're not nearly as amazing as you think, and not amazing enough. You will never be amazing enough. However amazing you might be, how is your amazingness going to help when you're in a casket by yourself? How is it going to help the people that you love? Your amazingness doesn't matter. You're going to be forgotten in two to three generations, regardless of how amazing you might be. That amazingness does not carry on, especially if we're talking about death. So um, Christianity doesn't make you amazing. Um, why, do I, why do I think everyone needs to become a Christian? Um, I would love for everyone to become a Christian, um, and hopefully we become maybe more amazing along the way, although in my experience, I don't think that's really true. Um, but, and I don't think that everyone, a question almost like implies that like a militaristic kind of proselytizing of like, let's get out there and, you know, like be the army of God. Um, I just don't think that's how people respond positively to anything. And I don't think that's also how Jesus told us to act. So I don't know, I would say I would love everyone to become a Christian and we're called to talk about our faith. I don't think, ever, um, yeah, I, anyway, I can get a ramble and re repeat myself. This is the problem with this thing. Who knows what I might say? Um, let me check if there are other questions on here real quick. I don't think any others came through. Yeah. By the way, um, if anyone else has a question, I'm happy to, yeah. No, I'll repeat it. Yes. Oh, great. Qu yes. Thank you, Augustine. Bringing it back. Yes. 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 Thank you very much, Augustine. Bringing it back to the to the real answer. Um, what Augustine was saying. Well, you guys all heard it, but people online didn't. Uh, it's not about being amazing. It's the fact that we need it. And a life. I as humans, we generally um, don't think of our dignity and worth, I don't think nearly as much as we do, as, as we ought to, we settle for so much less than God himself in our lives. And we're never meant to settle for anything less than God himself in all that we do. We never should settle for anything less than God himself. And no amount of amazing is going to get you God himself. And we need to have that, not just in our life to come, but in our life now, because we desperately need rescue, regardless of how amazing we might be.